this is Connie Morgan coming at you with the Valentine's Day edition of the FBT podcast. Today my guest is Delano Squires. He and I discuss what a pro-marriage culture looks like as a preview to his forthcoming book on the same topic. Delano is a research fellow in the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family at the Heritage Foundation. He is also a contributor to Blaze Media and Blaze TV's Fearless with Jason Whitlock. He is a must-follow on the Compendium of Free Black Thought and one of my personal favorites. This conversation was way too short and I can't wait to read his book because you know what? There is no such thing as a Black perspective, just Black people with perspectives. Delano, thank you so much for joining me today here on the Free Black Thought Podcast. You are one of our essential follows on the compendium, and so we're just thrilled to have you um, come on and share all of your wonderful wisdom. We're going to be talking about marriage and relationships and the family because this is our Valentine's Day issue, so that'll be a really fun topic. But first, before we get into all that, you got to just lay the foundation for our listeners. Where did you grow up? How were you raised? What's your origin story? Sure. And Connie, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, it's an honor to be here with you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, so I grew up in New York, in New York City, in Queens. Uh, my parents are from Barbados, so they came over to the States, late 70s, early 80s. Um, grew up in a, in a pretty big family. My mom is the youngest of 10. My dad is the second youngest of six. So I grew up with a lot of cousins and, you know, Big family gatherings at, in, during the holidays. I also grew up in church, so I have a fairly extensive sort of church family. Um, and, you know, you know, parents have been married 40 plus years. And, you know, I, I find like I, I had a good life. Mm-hmm. I went to public schools in New York City for all but two years. Um, actually, went to five schools two elementary, two middle, and one high school. And um, then left New York. Went to school in Pittsburgh, bounced around, couldn't find work, ended up here in D.C., in the D.C. area about 16 years ago and have been here ever since. So I worked close to 15 years with local government in D.C., a number of different um, positions. But for the better part of that, uh, running a public facing program where we help low income residents get access to technology. So we built a computer lab for ex-offenders and ran you know, training courses for them. We did STEM stuff for young kids. We converted a bookmobile into a mobile technology lab, took it to public housing projects. Um, And, you know, we did a bunch of cool stuff trying to get people connected to tech. Uh, And in my last year, I was in the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. So, um, so fairly sort of diverse background. But through that, during that entire time, I started to write publicly, first for a website called Black and Married with Kids. Um, I was writing for them when I was single. So I, I, I didn't have kids. I wasn't married, but I've always been black. So that's, <laughs> that was sort of my entry point. And then, um, then for The Root and The Griot, I had my own blog for a period of time. When I decommissioned that, the political sort of winds had shifted to the point where the stuff I would have written for the route, I had to pitch to the Federalist. Mm-hmm. So then I wrote for the Federalist and then the Blaze. I've been writing for the Blaze pretty much since 2021. So I tell people, I feel like I can safely say I'm the only person in the country who's had both Joy Reid and Jason Whitlock as editors. <laughs> um, and and that, that is true. So, um, so yeah, so that's a little bit about me, about my background. So did you know, was it a goal for you to kind of get into this publicly writing, writing and thinking, thinking publicly basically is what you kind of do now? Was that where you thought your career would end up? No, because I, um, I actually studied computer engineering as an undergrad, mm-hmm. but I, I, after I finished college, I read a couple of books because I, I didn't really read anything outside of engineering, you know, when I was in school. And there was a guy named Ralph Wiley who wrote uh, essays. He worked worked for ESPN. He wrote for ESPN, Sports Illustrated. He wrote on race and culture and politics. Um, And I just found him fascinating. And then I also was writing, reading John McWhorter. Mm -hmm. And I I read John McWhorter's book, Authentically Black. At the same time, I was reading Michael Eric Dyson's book um, on Bill Cosby. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of 
going back and forth between these two ways of viewing the world. And I think all three of those men shaped me in different ways. Um, but, but I think probably since, I don't know, 2012 or so, I, I saw myself wanting to do more in terms of public commentary. I didn't see how that would come about because uh, I was, you know, a humble civil servant and those are not the type of people who have, you know, roles speaking on, on race, class, and culture. Um, but, you know, God sort of opened some doors for me and, and my wife predicted it. And she said, I always saw you here. And, and I appreciate her for, for being with there and being there with me throughout this entire process. Um, but the issues of marriage and family have been ones that I've been talking and arguing with my friends about probably since I was 15 years old. Mm. And four of us growing up in New York, me in Queens, them in Brooklyn, seeing our life outcomes, right, even at that time, seeing how much different our lives were than some of our peers that we went to school with. And saying the two biggest differences are all of us are being raised in homes with married parents and all of us, we all go to the same church. Mm. So there was a sense of community. There was a sense of family. And even at that time, we could see how that impacted our outcomes, our social and educational outcomes, even as teenagers growing up in the city. So you talked about the political winds changed, and so you kind of had to change your platform. But your internal political leanings and positions haven't really changed. You've you've been the same way since you were fifteen, or how have you grown and developed and changed? The the major ones have stayed fairly consistent. I would say the biggest change for me has been more so on a spiritual level. Um, I would say that my worldview is clearer and more grounded than it was 10 years ago, mm-hmm. right? So I'll, gi- I'll give an example. So 10 years ago, when so-called marriage equality came up for public referendum in the state of Maryland, where I was living, I said to myself, well, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman, right? One man, one woman for one lifetime, committed to one another and all the fruit mm-hmm. that come from that union but I didn't see why the government should stop or could stop mm-hmm. to men, right. to women, whoever, right? right? Why? Well, what's the difference? And even though I was going to church and I would have called myself a Christian, I just, I didn't have the language and really the spiritual grounding to address that from a worldview perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because I segmented my, my faith was a room in a metaphorical house that I owned and I let Jesus come out and, have his way Sunday morning. And by one o'clock when it was brunch time, he went right back mm-hmm. in his room and I started to think about what I thought about in the same way. But now as I sort of matured, it's like God owns the entire house. Right. And all of the issues I think about from marriage, uh, money management, relationships, race and ethnicity, I think about all of those issues from a much more cohesive biblical perspective. Mm-hmm. So in that way, I'm able to defend my position on what people call traditional marriage in ways that other people can't. Because once you say, okay, well, marriage started with, you know, marriage is not a permanent union, right? So we can just say, you have irreconcilable differences, mm-hmm. whatever that mm-hmm. means. No, no fault, nobody's fault. So we just break it up, go on about our business. And now marriage is no longer between a man and a woman, just two consenting adults. Then I would ask the person who feels that way, well, why only two adults? Mm -hmm. Why not three? Why not six? What moral sort of standard are you appealing to to just stop it at two consenting adults? Mm -hmm. And I I wouldn't have been able to um, answer some of those questions 10 years ago, whereas I feel like I can better answer them today. So generally speaking, my views on the importance of marriage and fatherhood are the same. My views on the importance of a healthy and sort of affirming culture are the same, because I've written a fair amount critically of hip hop and hip hop culture. But there's some other things where I've definitely grown and matured 
And I think those things even come out in some of my writing and public speaking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can totally relate to on on the gay marriage issue in particular. I wasn't even a Christian back then, but I was still a conservative. I still lived a very Christian lifestyle for not being mm-hmm, a Christian. Mm-hmm. And I'm from Washington State. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were the first, you know, it was on the ballot very early for our state. And at the time, I basically made the same arguments in my mind as, as you did. And um, now I would have a different approach and I would vote differently than I, than I voted Mm. back then. Um, Can you tell us about your family though? When did you, when did you get married? When did you have kids? All that, when did that, where does that weave into your biography? Sure, 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 sure. So, um, so as I said, I I was writing for black and married with kids, right? And I was single. So I would write stuff like um, the nice guys really finished last. And some of my pieces are still up on, on BMWK. But the couple who started Black and Married with Kids, Ronnie and Lamar Tyler, who I think should be household names across the culture, um, they also did documentaries. And their third documentary was called Men Ain't Boys. Mm. And they had a screening here in D.C. Um, on Connecticut Avenue at the Avalon Theater. And they invited me out. It was a Thursday night, March 24th, 2011. And I had class that night because I was in grad school. Um, And it was right in the middle of the NCAA tournament. And my favorite team, the University of Connecticut Huskies, were playing. This was Sweet 16. They were playing San Diego State that night, Thursday night. And I said, you know what? Let me go out and support because they've been great to me. They allowed me to write for the site. Mm -hmm. So I go. I end up sitting on a row, you know, crowd full of black folk. And um, it's a young lady there was there with her friends. And, you know, I offered them some gummy worms, I had some candy, and, you know, we got to talking, we exchanged numbers and stuff like that. And it was my wife, my you know future wife. And, you know, we went out for lunch, you know. Um, I think we went out for lunch once and then you know, went out once or twice after that, sort of tailed off, lost contact a little bit. And then Memorial Day weekend that year, I saw her out just randomly and we, we talked. Then the skies opened up, a torrential downpour in the middle of D.C. And we had planned to go out later that night. And, and we did. And we've basically been inseparable since then. So we started dating seriously in June 2011. I proposed December 10th, 2011. And we got married the next July 2012. Um, so our courtship was fairly short. Uh, I was 30, she was 29. Uh, our daughter, our first child was born in 2016. So we waited a little mm-hmm. bit, a, a little while because we hadn't dated for a long time. And then since then, you know, now we're a family of six. So we have four kids, eight, five, four, and three. Our youngest is about to turn four as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, including an adopted child, my wife, we adopted my wife's maternal cousin, mm-hmm was four and we just finalized that adoption so now we wow. have we have four kids Wonderful. and um yeah so it's it's you know it's quite a story that's the most i promise you kind that's the most objective that's exactly how it went <laughs> in terms of when we met um but it's it's been a beautiful journey you know her and i just sort of walking things out together um during that time you know at one point, we both worked for D.C. government at the same time. We both worked in the same building, actually, mm-hmm. when we lived in D.C. Um, and after our third child was born, right around 2020, right before the pandemic, we realized that my wife, who's a social worker, was spending her entire day helping people take care of their kids. Mm-hmm. And we were paying somebody a mortgage to take care of our kids. Mm-hmm. And that started conversations about potentially her coming home and us homeschooling. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been doing that now for close to four years. And she's taken to it. Kids have taken to it. Um, my wife is a tutor in our homeschool co-op, in our homeschool community. And we just see how our family has sort of grown together over the last four years. And we and we see how the home really is meant to be a hub of productive activity. 
you know, relational, social, educational, economic, and spiritual activity. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we're in a better place to sort of actualize that than we were even four years ago. How quickly did you make, did you start thinking about homeschooling to actually, okay, she quit her job and she's home. How fast was that? Mm, Years. I'll be honest, I didn't even want to put the kids in private school. I grew up in New York and I said, I want my kids to go to public school. I want them to be street smart. And my wife wanted to put our younger children in private school. I was resistant to that. But um, part of the reason we got there is because I started to see, I started to see in the schools what a lot of people have been talking about for the last two, three years. Mm -hmm. I started to see BLM's guiding principles woven into the curriculum Mm -hmm. for kids as young as three years old. Mm -hmm. And when you start talking to three-year-olds about transgender and non-binary, then I'm like, okay, the schools have taken on a much different purpose Mm -hmm. than when I was a kid. So we we started to talk about it. Um, We started with private school. Um, I'm not sure if you know of a pastor named Vodibaka. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay. So we watched, he, he did a talk Entitled Children of Caesar. Mm-hmm. I've listened to the talk. Yep. Yep. Tell the audience, though. Yeah. Tell the audience. Yes. So, uh, Vodibach was a pastor, a Southern Baptist pastor. Um, so, he, he talks a lot about home education. Mm-hmm. And he said basically, Christian parents who send their kids off to government schools, as he puts it, not public schools, but schools run by the government. Um, Act and act surprised when the kids come home, basically rejecting their faith and their values, um, shouldn't be surprised because if you send your children to Caesar to be educated, you shouldn't be surprised when they come home talking like a Roman. Mm-hmm. And that really opened my eyes in ways that they hadn't been open to that point. And then I actually watched it with my wife, both, both, um, both parts, part one and part two. And then we started to have some serious conversations. So after our third child was born, she never even went back to work. Okay. She just took her, used her leave and just left, left the city. So it, so I, I say this is something that was, I matured into this because I realized it would put more weight on my shoulders. But um, one of the beautiful things, you know, about the work that I get to do is I get to think about and write about the, the reality that men and women are equal in dignity and worth but different in form and function. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had gotten into a habit of, at times, thinking about my wife primarily as a wage earner. Mm. And one of the things that I've said is that if the root of feminism is ever be pulled out of our culture, it'll be harder to get it out of some men than some mm-hmm. women. Mm-hmm. And I was one of those guys. Because mm-hmm. I was like, no, we can't. I don't want our standard of living to go down. Yeah. But then I had to realize, like, you know, our children are precious and their minds are precious. And the notion that my wife contributes more by bringing a paycheck than she does by shepherding and stewarding our children um, is a completely backwards notion. Because what our culture does, and and I've said this online, our culture praises any woman who manages a large, complex organization, Mm -hmm. unless it's her own home. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And we love women who dedicate themselves to raising the next generation of children, unless it's our own children. Mm-hmm. So um, I had to get that out of my mind. And that, that just took a fair amount of spiritual development um, and personal maturity. Let's talk about how you acquired such a lovely wife who you are now able to <laughs> grow and change and you know create a beautiful home for your children. We're going to talk yeah. about how to create a marriage culture within Black America, but let's start out with mm-hmm. actually dating because some people, yeah. I'm well, I don't know. I don't know what your own personal families were like. Um, maybe they didn't have this view if they were all church families and that kind of thing. But for a lot of folks, they'd say, whoa, that was a quick, you got married way too, you know, you got engaged really fast mm-hmm. and you got married really mm-hmm. fast. Do you think, what is the way? Is the way to do, hey, I know whether I want to marry you after four months, so let's get it. Or what's your advice as far as dating and how long people should be dating and be engaged before they're married? So uh, it's a couple of ways I can answer it. One, I'd say age and stage matter. So again, when we met, we were in our late 20s. I felt old when we got married. 
Um, but actually, we were sort of right on target, sort of in terms of the, the national trends. So in 1980, around when my parents got married, the, the median age of, of first marriage for a man was about 25 and for a woman it was about 22. My parents were right around those ages. Um, today, it's about 29 for a woman and about 31 for a man. My wife and I are right around there. The, the issue is that the average person, male or female, Christian or not, is not spending that seven-year difference, five to seven-year difference, right, um, in a sort of chase God-honoring lifestyle. It's racking up a bunch of different experiences, a bunch of sexual partners, a bunch of close calls Mm -hmm. of one type or another, a bunch of complicated relationship dynamics. Sometimes children are involved in there. And that really sort of is a burden for me because it's one thing when adults want to act silly and say, hey, it was just a casual thing. But when you start talking about kids... Kids, I believe, have a right to the affection and protection of the of the man and woman who created mm-hmm. them. And I think that right is best, is most effectively um, accessed when mom and dad are married to one another. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so I felt I was a little old. You know, my wife and I talk about it now. We would love if all of our kids are married by... 23. Oh, same. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. There's there's really no reason to, to to extend it because again, I think all people do is accumulate a bunch of baggage, a relationship baggage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of this is because marriage has gone from, and some social scientists have talked about this, gone from a cornerstone of life where two people meet, they get married typically earlier, and they sort of build their life together. Now it's seen as a capstone. So after you get all six of your degrees and you make partner and you make six figures and you drive a nice car, you got a nice house, then you can decide to get married. And I think, again, there are social reasons why I think that is a bad trade-off. There are relational reasons. Um, But then societally, think of it this way. If I get married first time at 38, have my first child at 40, a son, Mm -hmm. and he follows my same trajectory. That means I become a first-time granddad at 80 years old if I make it that far. Mm-hmm. By the time my grandson my grandson is ready to play in little league, they're going to have to wheel me to the game yeah. and and des- and describe what's actually going on. So this this I think this starts with an acceptance of delayed adolescence for young people and thinking that they can't take on responsibility. Um and then sort of on the high end it's we're, we are pushing family formation further and further and further out into the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that has a consequence both for families in the immediate term, but also for larger society. So, yeah, it, my wife and I, we say, look, if we, could, if we were in control of our timeline, we would have met at 23, mm-hmm. got married early and went all gas, no breaks for like <laughs> a good 10, 12 years and had like seven, eight kids. Yeah, yeah. Right. But it didn't work out that way. But we're right now we're just trying to grow where God has us planted and and hopefully raise and train our kids up with a different set of cultural norms um, so they don't feel like they're strange for wanting to get married, you know, before their 40th birthday. <laughs> yeah. The grandparent thing is something that I've just been screaming about. To, it's not even that people aren't becoming first-time grandparents so they're in their 70s or 80s when it used to be becoming a grandparent in your 40s was normal mm-hmm. um and being a great grandparent was almost a given now it's like say you know say goodbye to that idea you're not being a great great grandparent mm-hmm. let alone you're only getting 10 mm-hmm. years as a grandparent but also the importance of men it men in particular boys seeing their dads in their prime athletically physically mm. i think that's something that mm. no one's really talking about i was blessed to have a father my dad was 27 when he had me 28 when he had my brother and so and he stayed pretty fit and we got to see him he, he still to this day can hop a fence he's he's like a cowboy so he's still hopping fences roping or you know doing all that kind of physical stuff i think it cannot be overstated how important that is 
for boys in particular to see their fathers Mm. physically masculine you might be making the money you might be driving the nice cars you might be living a conservative clean lifestyle but if you're if you can't beat your son in arm wrestling or whatever by the time he's 13 i think that's a problem but that's just my little soapbox that i've Mm. been getting on lately and i just don't think people are thinking it through when they have these kids late and the effect it's going to have of not having younger dads grandparents all the above That's a fascinating point. I've never heard anyone put it that way. I've thought in terms of energy, right? So obviously, generally speaking, if you get married and have kids later, you're more financially stable, but there's a trade-off. So you have less energy. Even now, my kids, dad, we want to wrestle. Okay. And I'll wrestle for, and then I'll, I'll say, oh, you hit me. And then I'll just lay on the ground for like 15 minutes and I just let them jump on my back. But that's a fascinating point. And I, and I do think to your point, particularly with sons, and I have two sons, two daughters, your sons will tell you, my dad is, a, is the strongest daddy in the world. Mm-hmm. No matter, you could be five foot two and 120 pounds. Yeah. That, is your, that is your child's natural inclination mm-hmm. to see you as a strong sort of virile figure. Mm-hmm. And to your point, if a child never sees that in their formative years, I think that could have, yeah, a, definitely a negative effect on them. So that, that's, that's a fascinating point. I may steal that think about. I'm giving you attribution yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah, do that. And then just, you know, <laughs> tag me or send it to me. Um, yeah, 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 I when I used to say my dad's stronger, my dad's bigger than your dad. My dad wasn't big either. Mm-hmm. Like you said, he was a, he's a couple mm-hmm. inches taller than me. My dad's like 5'9 on a good day. But mm-hmm. I truly believe that he could beat up any other dad on the, in, mm-hmm. you know. And actually, I, I was probably right. Like he probably could mm-hmm. take on just about <laughs> anybody, right? Unless your dad's just 6'9 right. or something. But uh, right. And that, I don't know, that just has a psychological effect on like your yeah, safety yeah. and security as a kid. And I think so- social yeah. science has some work to do in exploring that. But that's good. That's good. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, we're going to find out. We're going to find out good and hard here in a decade or two. Mm-hmm. What happens when old mm-hmm. dudes have kids? Um, okay. So mm-hmm. courtship, there's no really, in your mind, mm-hmm. there's no reason to really, um, really, really wait um, too long, you know, get it, get it done, get it done young. What about kind mm-hmm. of premarital counseling and that sort of thing? When you're, do you think that's an important part of changing the marriage culture in the black community? Absolutely. I, and I think in general, I think premarital counseling, premarital education is a, is a great thing. Um, many young people either grew up in homes where parents were not married, parents were divorced. They saw, you know, dysfunctional relationships of one type or another, whether infidelity, abuse, abandonment, all three, something else. So, you know, everyone comes in with a set of relationship norms, how, how you manage money. Like I, one of the things that's a thing online is well, when you get married, do you combine finances or do you have them separate? I'm just like, why? You, the, the marital union is to become one. Mm-hmm. Why are you guys living like roommates in terms <laughs> yeah. of your money? Yeah. And then, and then you're wondering why you're having arguments about, well, you pay for it this time. And, you know, so I, I think premarital, premarital counseling is healthy. Um, I think it's wise. I think it's an area where, you know, churches and institutions of faith can do more. I also think it's one of those things that until you, there's a lot of things that you say, I, I'm going to do or I want to do. And then you say, I do. And then sometimes things kind of change, mm-hmm. right? So it's not the final word, but I think it's an important word uh, for people because, again, American family dynamics are very much different than they were 60 years ago. Um, people get married older ages. The marriage rates have gone down significantly. Um, people cohabit much more frequently. Um, I was doing a report at work Heritage Foundation on the state of, you know, the American family, relationships, fertility, marriage, multi, multi-partner fertility, cohabitation, all that. And one of the things that I found is that, according to the National Realtor Association, 20% of first-time home buyers were unmarried cohabiting couples. Mm-hmm. So back in my day, if you just moved in with a gal, right, you all moved in together, Old folks would say that's shacking up. Yeah. And they, they didn't like shacking up mm-hmm. very much. But what I've noticed is that 
couples will move in together as just part of the natural relationship arc, right? After three, four months of in the same city, I'm paying $1,000 a month, you're paying $1,200 a month. We see each other all the time. We spend, you know, spend nights together all the time. So we might as well move in together. And now what shacking up used to be in terms of the symbolism and the timeline, couples are filling that with purchasing homes together, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? It's the next sort of evolution. Mm -hmm. And I think what's happening is that there are couples who are mimicking all of the behaviors of a marriage culture, but without the benefit of marriage. Mm -hmm. So we live together, we purchase a home together, we have children together, we're just putting the marriage off for some time down, down the road. And I don't think that's wise. Well, why not? Because a lot of people will say, even when you try to bring up the number of, you know, single mothers in, in the black population, people will be like, well, a lot of those girls aren't actually single. They're just not married, you know? Right. So what's really right, the right, problem right. here? What's your response? Well, one of, the, one of the problems is that in American culture, cohabitation is an inherently unstable sort of family dynamic. Right. So according to Brookings, about two thirds of cohabiting couples break up by the time parent couples with children break up by the time their child is 12. I want to say it's about half break up within the first three years. Uh, so, so America does not have the cohabiting culture of Europe mm -hmm. where you can have a man and a woman in a monogamous -ish <laughs> relationship for 30, 40 years without being legally married, what's more likely here is that you're in a relationship for some period of time, it breaks up, you hop to another one, where you have another child with someone. And, and that is both an unstable family dynamic and it leads to um, a much more complicated set of family dynamics where a person's sort of family situation sounds like a lumberyard, right? He's, well, he's got six by four, six women, six kids by four women. She's got five by five. And he's got three by two. Um, and all of these things just introduce, uh, you know, a level, sometimes even of confusion into the household. Mm -hmm. but, but certainly it's disorder because what ends up happening is that inevitably that father is probably going to have a stronger relationship with whichever, which, with whichever child who's, you know, he has the best relationship with their right, mom, right. right? So if he has four women with whom he has children and one of them is a constant headache and the other one when he comes says look I'm, i'll make you a meal yeah come and play with junior he's probably going to spend more time with junior mm -hmm. than with his other child and in fact i've seen it where some guys are closer to the children of their of their girlfriend their current yeah. girlfriend yeah. than they are with their own biological mm -hmm. children mm -hmm. so um it, we acknowledge that math has an order of operations Right. Anybody of a certain age knows PEMDAS. Mm -hmm. Please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. Yes. Uh, family formation does as well. Mm -hmm. And that, that order is marriage before carriage. If you want to maximize uh, the, the benefits both to man, woman and child. So what if somebody hears what here's kind of the monologue that you just gave and goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. well, what if the solution is not they're like, I don't care whether you get married or not. Actually, what I care about mm -hmm. is whether you stay in that monogamous-ish relationship for a long time. So the solution mm -hmm. isn't necessarily that people need to get married. The solution is that we need to be more like Europeans and just whether you get married or not, <laughs> stay together for a long time. That's the cultural change that I'm trying to, you know, impart upon people instead of the actual get the form, you know, put it on paper, make it legal. What, what would you say yeah. to that? Well, I just don't think we have that type of culture where people will do it absent the form of commitment. The other thing is that no, people don't typically apply this to any any other type of uh, relationship with high stakes. No one would say, oh, we should just start a business. We're not going to formalize it. Mm -hmm. right? We're not going to have any sort of document that, sh that draws out terms. We're not going to make vows to one another to say what we will do in terms of our duties and responsibilities. We'll just say... We're in business together, right? We're going to share profits, and we're—it's like no one would do that right. because we understand when it comes to, you know, a business and enterprise, that you have to get terms in in writing. 
Um, and I would say that a marriage goes even further than that. It's a covenant relationship, not just a contractual relationship. So, I mean, I get the people who say it's just a piece of paper, but if, particularly within the black community, there was a culture of we're, we're doing what you want us to do absent that commitment, then I may have a different opinion on it. Mm-hmm. But with 70% of black children being born to unmarried parents, um, it's clear that that's not the culture that's dominant right now in our community. Mm-hmm. Do you try to make these, is your, is your audience people who are Christian or be, profess to be some kind of believer? Or do you make kind of these, get, get the premarital counseling, you know, get married, do all this? Do you primarily talk to Christians or will you, do you make a secular argument as well? Both. I mean, no, no, I may make a... I may make a biblical argument in a secular platform, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, if people want to know the foundation on which my worldview rests, I'm, I'm open right, about right. it. But my, my primary audience, here's, here's an unfortunate reality for me. My primary audience has been typically right of center conservatives, many of whom are Christian, mm-hmm. a subset of that who are black. Mm-hmm. Um, I would much rather spend the majority of my time talking to black folk, some of whom are Christian, many of whom are center left. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a quick example. All right, uh, published an op-ed recently in Newsweek, talked about why America needs a Black Wives Matter mm-hmm. campaign to rebuild the black family. Now, given that topic, I want to press my case with the people that I'm addressing. So I wanted to pitch to outlets to have, you know, national significance, large black readership, influential outlets. But the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic didn't have any interest in running that. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's me. Maybe I'm not <laughs> as good a writer as I thought. But here, here's the thing that stuck in my craw. Even the root and the griot passed on. Mm-hmm. It. And I've written for both platforms in the past. And they address a largely black audience. But I just don't think there's an appetite for this particular topic because every other topic that they address is about black people, but generally to white liberals. Mm. Um, and, And that's because sort of the equity industrial complex, and, and I'm thinking of sort of Ibram X. Kendi as the, you know, most successful salesman in in that sector. People like him are not black leaders per se, because a leader has to speak to the people he's following. So you you can tell what team a coach is leading by who is in the room when he's doing film study. And he says, look, Johnson, Mm -hmm. you missed your assignment and so on and so forth. All of Ibram Kendi's moral appeals are the white folks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Read this book, take this seminar. Hire my consultancy, right? Send your kids to this school. Live in this neighborhood. Say these words. Take these actions. The only thing that they reserve for Black folk are vote and protest. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's difficult to get certain things, you know, sort of in the public sphere to, to address and debate because over the last better part of 30 years, there's been a shift in the energy and the priorities of the black leadership class. In 1985, I think it was 85, Eleanor Holmes Norton, who's like the representative non-voting member of Congress here from DC, wrote an essay in the New York Times saying that we need to restore the traditional black family. Mm -hmm. It's hard to believe that they were running the same essay today. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I I want my primary audience to be black folk. Mm -hmm. And the book that I'm writing, which is on restoring marriages, the foundation of black family life, it is for the young, the 25 year old guy in Brooklyn mm-hmm. or West Baltimore or the South Side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. It is for him so that he f- may consider putting marriage before carriage mm-hmm. when it comes to him and his girlfriend. But it is too the black leadership class, the people I refer to as the Afristocracy, the black progressive politicians, pundits, professors, preachers, and performers, because they are the people that establish 
the, the boundaries of discourse that establish the issues that will be covered on mainstream media, um, that establish how certain issues will even be discussed. And they're the ones that say, um, yes, Black Lives Matter is in and Black Wives Matter is out. Mm. Yeah. And I, I was going to ask you about that, that piece, the Black Lives Matter piece. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about fatherless homes and I'm obsessed with masculinity in a good way, <laughs> just like every other center right person, right? You're always talking about men need to be men and blah, blah, blah. Like I'm into all of that as mm. well. We already talked about my thoughts about fathers and stuff like that. But I also believe that women actually hold all the power in the sense that mm. we decide I told my husband, I was like, if we, if women got together and we and we said, you know what, we really want men to have blue hair now. We, we're into that. We could control that in a week's time. If every lady just said, I'm not sleeping with you unless you have blue hair. Every guy in America would run to the barber and be like, dye my hair blue. You know, so I think that we is because we are access to something that all men want, whether you're whether that's within a marriage mm-hmm. or not. Um, you know, women are a very powerful, but not in a lot of the ways that feminists, you know, because the feminist will tell you right. power is sleeping with lots of men. And that's not really where we get a lot of our power from and how we tame mm-hmm. men. Right. Um, and that balance that men and women have that you don't see in like the gay, you know, the gay male with gay men who there is nobody, there is no mm-hmm. gatekeeper. Right. And so they all right. have like a lot of partners and a lot of C's and all this. Anyways, I'm getting a little sidetracked. The point is, do you think that actually more effort needs to be put into reaching out to black women and making that change? You know, like who, who's, who do we have to affect the hearts and minds of first men or women, or is it just always going to be a two pronged approach? And you, you know, some people are going to go to change men. Some people are going to try to influence women's choices and we'll go yeah. from there. So I, I think it's um, an all hands on deck approach. So again, uh, and again, I'm writing a book on this very topic. I have, when I think about rebuilding the Black family, there are institutional actors. So for instance, I think every HBCU should have as part of its mission to improve relationships between Black men and Black women. Mm-hmm. That could be through coursework on Black love. It could be extracurriculars, you know, a wife school, husband boot camp. It could be schools of social work and psychology offering counseling services to sort of the surrounding neighborhood. Um, The Black church has a role to play. I think Black artists and entertainers have a role to play in terms of not pumping content that promotes degradation or dysfunction. But in my book, in terms of how I plan to approach it, both Black men and Black women will have a chapter dedicated directly to Mm -hmm. them. For Black men, it'll be something along the lines of this is what black women want from you, mm-hmm. right? Love and loyalty. And for black women, it's a similar thing, right? This is what black men want from you. Rest and respect, right? Peace and respect. Um, because the only person who is without guilt within the household is the child. Because yes. mm-hmm. both, both men and women make decisions, micro and macro, that have contributed to the, the, the degradation of sort of marriage and family in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, do I think that some, the, the and, and this, this is where both the, the radical feminists and the red pill community get this stuff wrong, yeah. generally speaking, not just within the black community, because they, they both, um, one, they speak about the opposite sex with a sense of contempt. Yes. And, and, and I think this is where a biblical framework actually comes in. Um, my pastor actually preached, we were working our way through, through Genesis, and we, yesterday was Genesis 2, I think 18 through 25, and he noted that Adam's first words recorded in the Bible are sort of a proclamation of, of joy, having found a suitable help, helper, mm-hmm. right? So the Red Pill guys are like, you don't even need women. Just get your money up, lift, stop drinking, stop drugging, stop doing porn. I'm, I'm cool. I'm good with those right. last three messages. But they don't think men need women. Mm-hmm. They think women need men. Mm-hmm. And the pink-haired feminist is the complete opposite. She has contempt for men. 
And she doesn't think that women need men. Mm -hmm. They just need men's seed for reproduction. Um, but I think both of those have it wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something both parties, again, coming back within a cultural context, both black men and black women have some things that we need to improve on, generally speaking, if we are to have functioning relationships. Um, it's not going to be an easy discussion. It's going to be multi-layered and complex. It's going to have to do about media and culture. It's going to have to do about politics, um, right? In terms of how one political party that holds so much holds so much sway in the community can effectively act as a wedge within the household mm -hmm. and make men afraid of saying who they're going to vote for for fear of upsetting this significant other and make women say, actually, I think black women should be more loyal to, to the Democratic Party than we are to, to the men in our community. One of the ways I've said this is that the most significant interracial relationship in this country is, has, is not found in Loving versus Virginia. It is in the relationship between radical black feminists and white liberals Ooh. that has powered the Democratic Party for the better part of the last 50 mm -hmm. years. Yeah. That, that's it right mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. So there, there are certain things that need to be unraveled within that and unpacked. But yeah, every everybody has to come up for accountability, men and women equally. It's not, not just one side. Who do you think it's easier to make inroads with when it comes to getting them to change their mindset? Um... I think it might be slightly easier for guys. Mm -hmm. I think women have more things to unpack, right? Like fidelity is a big thing that women look for in mm -hmm. men. And even though there's some guys who've never shown a desire or an ability to be faithful to one women, there's very little in the culture that tells them that yes, this is a good thing. Because most people still look look at adultery as a, as a bad thing, even if they sort of wink, wink, nod, nod, accept mm -hmm. it. No one promotes it as a positive good. Mm -hmm. Whereas the way feminists define empowerment is promoted. Yeah. Independence right. is promoted as a positive good. Like last year, I saw two articles, one in the Washington Post, one in USA Today, that talked about the shortage of, for lack of a better term, black sperm, um, because... Only 2% of sperm donors nationally are black men. Mm -hmm. And this, this story was a profile on the black women, um, some of whom heterosexual, many of whom are lesbian, want to have black babies but can't find sperm donors. Right. And I think within those stories is all types of things unpacked. Mm -hmm. One, it's the, the career and education over family impulse. Because some of the women will say, look, I could have married a guy years ago, but, you know, I was concentrating on doing X, Y, and Z. Um, two was the rejection of sort of the natural family dynamic. So it's like, well, I don't really want a husband. I just, I just want, this is the sort of BLM mindset. I just want the man for his seed and his ability to help me reproduce and create life. Mm -hmm. um, that, that, that's why BLM has no interest in talking about husbands and fathers. Mm -hmm. It's about men being used for one of three things, um, a vote for political power, um, seed for reproduction, and a corpse to drive activism. Mm. If you can't bring one of those three things, they're not really interested in mm. you. So I, I just think women have slightly more to unpack. But again, I think men and women should speak to their respective camps. Even in Christian circles, there's a lot of talk about Proverbs 31 women who were industrious, and sort of care about their families. And I'm all for that. But I don't know we're getting somewhere in the culture where we start talking about the Titus II woman who is teaching the younger women how to um, love and respect and honor her husband and to care for her children and her household. Um, that's a different sort of type of conversation. So I, I think it'll be hard for both, but I think it might be slightly easier to reach men um, with with a inspirational and aspirational message. Mm -hmm. 
that's we could go on and on and I want to and when you when your book is out and published I hope that you will come back on the podcast and we talk about this more in length but I know you're on time kind of a tight schedule so I want to um move on to our 10 speed round questions and then give you an opportunity after that to leave our audience with your final thoughts um are you ready for your 10 questions I am okay question number one what would your last meal be Mmm. Probably a ribeye steak, mashed potatoes, and uh, some sort of grilled vegetable, something like that. How many times have you been in love? Only one that's counted. What's the biggest misconception about you? <laughs> um, that I'm too serious. Do you think BET serves a worthwhile purpose today? Not anymore. What's the best part of being black? Mm. Hmm. Um, that's a good question. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I, I would say the best part of being black is knowing that my ethnic identity is not just about oppression and struggle. Mm. Yeah. What's your favorite cartoon movie? Cartoon movie? Mm-hmm. Lady in a Tramp. Is Rachel Dolezal a bad person or just misunderstood? I think Rachel Dolezal is owed an apology by the American culture. Um, so I, th- I think she's misunderstood. Black History Month, yay or nay? Yay. Black or African-American? Black. What is your favorite musical? I'm not really a favorite, a musical guy. I'll say this. My favorite sort of fella, fella, fella. Okay. I'll go with that. There you go. That, that was your 10 questions. You got through them. Do you have any final thoughts you want to leave with our audience? Yeah, I I mean, my final thoughts are this. I think that there is a tremendous opportunity to alter the trajectory of the Black community as we know it today. Um, It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a complete shift in priorities. And And I define prior or characterize priorities as the observe allocation of scarce resources. Um, Time is a resource, money is a resource. So is righteous indignation, that's a resource. And I think if if there are enough people who get on on board with sort of an effort to restore and rebuild the black family, um, we could be writing or we will end up writing a completely different chapter in the history of sort of black people in this country from what we would get if we continue on this particular path so i'm hopeful because my faith demands that i be hopeful Mm -hmm. Um, and i think there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of opportunities to uh, to do it and when do you have an estimate of when your book is coming out Do you know that yet? Probably sometime fall 2025. Okay. Okay. Good to know. All right. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on. We're big fans. Thank you for having me. And we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast.